This is the podcast for Signs of the Second Coming of Christ. In each episode, we attempt to answer common questions concerning the Second Coming and the Signs of the Times. We are your hosts, Landon Alley and Sean Bailey. Sean is the author of the book series, Chronological Signs of the Second Coming of Christ. Our goal with this podcast is to discuss the Second Coming in a way that's accessible, conversational, and faithful to Scripture. The next part of this story picks up in chapter 11 of Revelation, um, verse 3. And notice that we skipped the first two verses of chapter 11 and the entire chapter of chapter 10 because it was this parenthetical vision. It was a tangent vision that John was giving us just to let us know what was going on, okay? And he picks up the story again with the two witnesses. And just like we talked about before, he uses the language of the scriptures so that we know which scriptures we need to reference to understand this better. Jared, will you read in chapter 11, starting in verse 3? And I will give power unto my two witnesses, that they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, for those who are too tired to do math today, that is three and a half years. Continue. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over, the, over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. The two witnesses. What other scriptural allusions do we have here? We have power to shut heaven. We have prophecy, the days of their prophecy. We have power over waters to turn them to blood. We have the power to smite the earth. We have fire proceeding out of their mouth to devour their enemies. We have all of these other references, these scriptural references that are attributed to these two prophets, these two witnesses. And all of those things are clues for us to understand who these people are and what exactly, where exactly they're mentioned in the scriptures. So for example, in Genesis chapter 14, the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 14, it says that all those who have the priesthood of Melchizedek, it's specifically talking about Melchizedek in that that passage, and it says all those who have the priesthood of Melchizedek have the power to put at defiance the armies of nations. That's in um, JST Genesis 14.31. So they they can do that in a lot of different ways. They can call down plagues. They can burn their enemies with fire from their mouths, right? I don't exactly know what that means, but it sounds really scary. Um, They have the sealing power, right? To shut heaven, that it rains not in the day of their prophecy. Just like Elijah. And Elijah, of course, we know also had the, the Melchizedek priesthood. So they have the sealing power and the Melchizedek priesthood and the same powers that some of the greats from all of the scriptures have had. They also have this really divine, this really powerful divine protection of the Lord, where if anyone even tries to hurt them, they're destroyed with plagues, fire, whatever they want to say that comes out of their mouths. They cannot be hurt, at least not yet. I think what we've talked about is clear. We do know that there will be two servants, um, two lights that will be Uh, given to the Jews at that time to protect them, to aid them, and to help them, and to help them to grow closer to Christ, even though they will be in very perilous times. I can't imagine what kind of power will need to be manifested in order to keep an army of 200 million people, or an army that cannot be counted, away from Jerusalem or certain parts of Israel for three and a half years. You would think an army that size, with that magnitude, with that kind of firepower, right? You name it, they can use it. You think that it would take just one day to go in and topple Jerusalem and completely eradicate the Jews from off the face of the earth. Have you ever wondered what would cause 
the earth, all nations of the earth to gather against Israel? That's a really good question. I've thought a lot about that. And one of the things that I've thought about is um, we have to get our, I think we have to get our perspective out of um, current affairs. And, and the reason I say that is because we could probably imagine a lot of reasons why the world would be mad at a particular nation, right? I would imagine if you had a country like Israel, if they were to nuke another nation and wipe them off the map. Even if you were to talk about like some kind of nuclear event, right, where Israel becomes the aggressor, now you're having to take it the next step and say, well, what would cause Israel to then become that aggressor? I don't, I don't know the answer, but all I know is that, I mean, you kind of have to look at what's going on geopolitically and kind of get an understanding of what's going on there. Let me, let me share with you something from Bruce R. McConkie. I don't often share Bruce R. McConkie because he's kind of a polarizing figure. Um, that being said, he's extremely right very often. <laughs> <laughs> so, so trust me when I say he knows more than most of us will ever know, or he did know, uh, he still knows, right? Um, more than most of us will ever know about the so, scriptures. I will say this. I have no problem with Bruce R. McConkie. <laughs> Good. That's how it should be. Bruce R. McConkie gave his opinion a lot on a lot of things, but you know, I love that about him. I love that he was able to give his opinion from time to time, even when it was just a really, really informed opinion and not necessarily prophecy, right? I loved that about him. Um, so don't don't be dogging on my boy, Bruce on McConkie, okay? Uh, <laughs> so um, Bruce on McConkie said this, and I thought it was profound. We have to remember that the war against Jerusalem grows out of the larger war between good and evil. The reason that nations hate the nation of Israel, or at least they will hate the nation of Israel at that time, is because they hate the gospel. They hate the truth. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so my belief is that it's Zion that they hate. They really, really, really hate Zion, but it's untouchable. They want to destroy it, but they can't. And Jerusalem and the nation of the Jews is going to align itself with Zion. And they will take out all their wrath and fury upon them for that reason. The Jews will begin to be converted to the gospel. And for that reason, they will be allies with Zion. And the Lord will send his emissaries to there to be able to protect them and to, and, to, uh, and to preach to them. So we have to remember, this is a holy war. At this point in the scriptures, we can talk about geopolitical reasons all day long, and they may be a part of this. But we have to remember that the, at the very essence, at the very core of this entire conflict, is a war between good and evil, a war between the lamb and the dragon, the Savior Jesus Christ and the devil. Christ versus the Antichrist. So what is going to keep all of these nations together enough, long enough to fight against Jerusalem when they're getting annihilated by these two prophets? It's a hatred. It's a, it's a common hatred of God, his Christ, and his saints. That is the, the unifying force. And if we remember that, then that will help us put perspective on all of the reasons why the Lord responds the way he does. Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Um, I hadn't read that uh, quote by Bruce R. before, um, and I think that's an interesting take on it. And it, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's, that's believable, right? If you've got Zion here in America and in possibly other parts of the world and, and the other nations are just wanting to kind of get back at Zion, right? Because they know they can't attack them. They've tried. It didn't work. Um, so they go after someone else that they are allied with that they believe doesn't have that same protection. And so then they then 
attack them to kind of they get believe at, right that's, yeah. that's the key <laughs> yeah that, all it takes is a couple of two just two people that's it that's all it takes <laughs> just two people and a couple of asteroids what are the words that are just used to describe the two witnesses uh, the two words are olive trees and candlesticks where does that come from there is a passage in Zechariah chapter 4 and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar to you okay um, this is in verse 11. It says, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like the verse of scripture we just read from Revelations. It does, doesn't it? So let's, let's pick out a few pieces from here. So we've got, in addition to them being called olive branches and candlesticks and olive trees, what we have is a description that they are two anointed ones. So they have the Melchizedek priesthood. They have the same sealing power as Elijah, and they're anointed, and they stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So this is pretty clearly a reference to prophets, prophets that have sealing power and that are anointed by the Lord. The question then is, which two prophets, right? We know a few things about these two prophets. Obviously, they have all this power, right? So we could say, well, maybe it's Elijah coming back. Maybe it's Enoch. They are part of tradition in the Jewish tradition that they literally believe they're coming back. They set a, a, a table, a place at the table during Passover for Elijah to come back. So maybe it's Elijah that's doing all of this. That would make a lot of sense, right? Elijah has called down fire before. He's sealed up the heavens before. Why not him? Well, here's the problem with that idea. And I actually like that idea, but there's a scriptural problem with that. The problem is the two prophets are killed. After three and a half years, the army will overcome them and they will be killed. So we can't say that they are translated beings or that they are resurrected beings because those types of beings cannot be killed. And so what we have to say is they are mortal and they have the same power and authority that the prophets of old had. And what that means is that narrows it down to those who hold the sealing power now. Who holds the sealing power now? Well, that would be anyone in the Quorum of the Twelve or First Presidency. Exactly. So we've narrowed it down to at least 15. Before you go speculating, you're like, oh, I love Elder Holland. I know it's him. Um, we, or <laughs> Elder Bednar's my favorite. To be fair and like to be completely transparent, it absolutely could be Elder Holland. Like, absolutely could. It absolutely could be Elder Bednar. Like, it could be any of those who belong to the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency right now, if they're still alive. We don't know how long this is going to be or who, is, who will still be alive or how this is going to work, who, who Christ will choose after Zion is established. Like, we don't know those things yet, right? So it's, it's difficult and probably it's a little bit fruitless to try to guess who they are at this point because um, we just don't know. Let me give a, a slightly different uh, interpretation, if I, if I will. I won't, I won't be long on this. Let me first uh, ask you a question. Sure. When the Savior was on the earth, he had a mortal body. Um, it has been suggested that his body may have been a translated body. Would you? Is that a fair statement? That Christ's body was translated? Yes. He couldn't, he wouldn't, he couldn't die, right? He had to willingly die. Um, I do not think that that is the case. But he still had to willingly die, correct? Um, can I give you my take on that? Sure. He was completely unique for that very reason. He was fully mortal fully mortal. He received the gift of mortality, the ability to die from his mother. And unlike anyone else in all of history, and possibly all of any era of time, any epoch of time throughout 
all eternity. He had a mortal mother and an immortal father. And because he had an immortal father, that gave him power over death. It wasn't that he was translated. It was literally that his father was immortal and his mother was mortal. He had the power to die, but he had the power to choose when to die. And in addition to that, he had the power to take his body up again. That was the, he was the only one with that power. And because he was the only one, he was the only one that could bring about the resurrection. All true statements. And, and, and thanks for clarifying that. I, I guess I used the term translated a little liberally there. Um, I was referring more to the, the idea that a translated body, in theory, won't die, right? That you will have that body and continue with that body um, until you are eventually resurrected. At least that's what uh, Christ tells the three, the three Nephites, right? Yeah, um, and I, I think I know where you're going with this. I think I know where you're going. Well, we're, because yeah, we, were, so we're, we were talking about how the two prophets can't be translated, and you're saying maybe they could, right? I'm saying maybe they could in that what if they choose to die? Okay. What if, what if you are dealing with translated individuals and the reason they are able to withstand an army for three and a half years and protect Jerusalem for three and a half years is because, one, they have a mission to complete with the Jews, right, to prepare them to meet their Savior. Sure. Um, and so they, they have that mission to complete. Um, and once that mission is complete, once they've got it to a point where enough of the Jews have accepted Christ as their Savior, their mission is done. And could they then willingly let themselves die? I I don't mind that interpretation. So let's just let's just go down, I guess, this this path a little further. And it's okay. not that I necessarily believe anything that I'm saying right now is true, right? I'm just but providing it's, it's an a, alternate. It's a thought angle. exercise, right? It's a thought exercise, exactly. This is a I like that, a thought exercise. And we'll see how weak I've been since I haven't been able to work out for the last two weeks. Um <laughs> You've worked out your mind. I, I guess. I don't know. That, that could be argued. Um, <laughs> what do you know about the Apocrypha of Joseph the Carpenter? Not much. I don't know Not very much. much about that at all. No. Okay. Um, so there's an apocryphal book called the Apocrypha, uh, Joseph the Carpenter. And I don't know if this particular apocryphal writing existed in the what we call the apocrypha i haven't had a chance to research that yet um, and find that out if that's a fact or not Um, but there is an apocryphal writing called joseph the carpenter now if you do some research on this apocryphal writing you will find several people that have commented that this particular apocryphal writing is pretty much made up and the, they believe that for a variety of different reasons. And you can definitely understand why they would come to that conclusion as you read through the apocryphal writing, because there's a lot of allusions to scriptures and teachings that would have come from the Savior from the four Gospels. Um, there's even some references to um, even some parts of the book of Revelation. Okay. Um, but the whole premise of this apocryphal writing is it talks and, about... And they're saying that that's like, what's the term for that? Anachronistic? Where um, you go back, things that you learn later on, and you go back and pretend that you're someone else or something? Yeah, so like what they did is they, they ended up like going through and putting a narrative together on who Joseph the Carpenter was. Okay. And, and in short, what they pretty much say is that Joseph was a, a priest of Levi. Um, he was in his old age, like really old age. Um, he'd already had a family. He already had a wife. He'd already had some kids. His wife had passed away. His kids were already older. And all of a sudden, Mary comes around as this young girl. And they immediately know this is a special person and that she should be protected and cared for. So Joseph ends up becoming her, her, her caretaker as, as a, a young woman. Um, eventually, he's then commanded to marry her, and then it goes on kind of throughout his life of how good, jo- how how wonderful Joseph was. Then it eventually talks about Joseph's death, and there's an elaborate um, story behind the the death of Joseph, uh, the carpenter. But and like I this said, is, what's interesting to, to be clear, Joseph the carpenter, the 
the adopted father of Christ, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, now, as I mentioned, what's interesting is you do get these allusions to scriptures that you can recognize from the Gospels. What's interesting here is what is, is said at the end of this apocryphal writing. Like I said, take this with probably a huge grain of salt because um, it's unclear as to where the person that wrote this apocryphal writing got this information. He says, quote, I say unto you, O my brethren, that they also, Enoch and Elias, must towards the end of time return and, into and the And to be world. clear, in a New Testament context, Elias is Elijah. Correct. Yep. So I'll read that again. Um, I'll replace Elias with Elijah. And I say unto you, O my brethren, that they also, Enoch and Elijah, must towards the end of time return into the world and die in that day, namely of commotion, of terror, of perplexity, and affliction. For Antichrist will slay four bodies and will pour out their blood like water because of the reproach to which they shall expose him and the ignominy with which they, in their lifetime, shall brand him when they reveal his impiety. So we have a reference here in this apocryphal writing, one of an Antichrist, which we'll talk about later or in, in the book of Revelations. Well, let's, let's talk about it really quick. The, the Antichrist is Satan. Okay, and I think it's important to understand that when there is a reference to the Antichrist, it, it's not a reference to any particular person. It's a reference to the Antichrist, which is Satan. And Satan is the one leading these four evil spirits and this army against Jerusalem. But what I, what I find interesting about this particular writing is just this idea that there are, there, the, namely these two prophets that he mentions, both Enoch and Elijah, that these two prophets would return in the latter days and that they would then die. So we're talking about translated beings that would then die and then be resurrected three and a half days later. So like I said, there's definitely a grain of salt there because I have no idea where the individual that wrote this got this information from. I don't know if it was a myth. I don't know if it was just some story that was passed down from generation to generation to say, hey, this is who we think these two witnesses would be based on what John specified in his book. No idea. Um, however, I just thought it was interesting that you mentioned translated beings, and here we have a reference to two translated beings, correct, that in theory could then allow themselves to die because their mission is then complete. I don't mind that that interpretation at all. And a lot of what we know about translated beings are specific references to the three Nephites, um, those three disciples of Christ from the Nephite people who were promised that they their bodies would be changed, right? And so when we get the description from the, uh, the abridger of this record, Mormon, that he asked, what is the nature of this change that has happened upon their bodies? When he asks about that, he's not talking about those who've been translated from the city of Enoch or Elijah or Moses or, or any of those who came before. He's specifically asking about these three disciples and what will happen to them. So it says that at the end, in fact, let's read that really quick. In chapter 28 of 3 Nephi, starting in verse 38, Therefore, that they might not taste of death, there was a change wrought upon their bodies, that they might not suffer pain nor sorrow, save it were for the sins of the world. This change was not equal to that which shall take place at the last day, but there was a change wrought upon them, insomuch that Satan could have no power over them, that he could not tempt them, and they were sanctified in the flesh, that they were holy, and that the powers of the earth could not hold them. And in this state they were to remain until the judgment day of Christ. The judgment day of Christ is the seventh seal, the last day, right? And at that day, they were to receive a greater change and to be received into the kingdom of the Father to go no more out, but to dwell with God eternally in the heavens. So these three were not destined to die. And so I think we've kind of carried that along and we've said, all right, well, 
maybe no translated beings are destined to die. Maybe they're all destined to be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality into immortality. Like it says in verse 36, I know not whether they were cleansed from mortality to immortality. Um, We believe that translated beings will, when Christ comes, they will be changed from mortality into immortality in the twinkling of an eye. They won't have to go through death as normal people do. But maybe in these two specific cases, they have a mission to fulfill. Maybe with Enoch and Elijah, they have a mission to live until that day and live until the time of their ministry to the Jews. And then at the end of their ministry, um, it will be cut short after three and a half years and they will die. Maybe that's their destiny. It would be interesting because how do you kill a translated person? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I think the only way that you would is if they would allow it. Um, it would be their choice. A few chapters later in Zechariah, in chapter 12, it picks up this idea again. It talks about these these two again. It says, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. So this, I think, is a reference to to governors, these governors who preside over the people in Jerusalem, who have the power of fire to protect the people from those all around them. They devour all the people round about, right? Let me give you another question. Like, let's see if we can look at this from another angle for a second. Where does their power come from? Well, their, their power comes from God. That's where it comes from. The best example I can think of comes from the book of Helaman when Nephi is given this power. Uh, after Nephi has shown his obedience to God, after he has testified to the people day in and day out to repent, and they won't repent, right? They're getting, they're continuing to become more wicked. The, the secret combinations are continuing to gain influence and power. The people are on a trajectory that's going to lead them to destruction. So here's Nephi trying to figure out what, what am I supposed to do next, right? I've I've taught them, I've preached to them, no one's listening, and it's just getting worse. You, th- you think that's a pretty low moment for any missionary, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And all of a sudden, in this, in this moment where Nephi's like, what, what am I supposed to do? The Lord says, I'm going to give you some power. I'm going to give you more power of the priesthood than what you have had to this point. I'm going to give you a sealing power. I'm going to allow you to say, if you want to shut up the heavens, the heavens get shut up. If you say there is a famine, there's going to be a famine. He pretty much gives Nephi the same power that was given unto Moses. And so, at that point, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy the people. At which point, what does Nephi say? Don't let them destroy themselves with the sword. Let them instead have a famine, and maybe that will wake them up. And that's what happened, right? A famine came. It lasted for several years. The, uh, the more wicked part of their society died off, and finally the people started to remember the words that Nephi had taught them. They started to humble themselves. They started to repent. And once Nephi saw that, he then used that same power to then remove the famine, and then they were able to have food to live on. And Nephi was able to save his people from destruction because of power that was given unto him from God. You know, the, so the, most is... interesting, the most interesting part of that story to me is a, a little phrase at the end of that, that, uh, that, it, that, those years of famine, where it says, Nephi prayed, and then the rain came in the season of rain. So this tells you that, I mean, that's, so just think about that for a second, right? Here's a prophet, he prays unto God, what God does is he changes the pattern of rain. All of a sudden, Nephi prays, 
and the rains return back to the pattern that they had before and the people knew that pattern and they can then grow food um, with that pattern. So, so that's the kind of power we're talking about. Mankind doesn't have that power, right? Even though sometimes we think that we do. Yeah, we think that we do. Um, We don't. Yeah, mankind doesn't have the power to shift a whole entire jet stream for three and a half years. And And then put it right back. And then put it right back. Yeah. It is... We don't have that power. Um, But Nephi did. And this is the kind of power we're talking about that these two witnesses have. That same kind of power that Moses has. Let me dig in a little bit more, okay? So we know that priesthood power is only one part of this balanced equation. The other part has to be faith. Where did the faith come from to enable this power that Nephi was given um, to produce a famine? Where did the faith come from? Well, I mean, obviously the faith came from uh, the testimony he had of the Savior and knowing that his prayers have been answered in the past. But where I think his faith came from was the love he had for his people. He didn't want to see his people destroyed. He didn't. And you, you see that same thing happen when when Enos is talking with the Lord. You see that same type of faith where he's praying for the Nephites, he's praying for the Lamanites, and he has love for these people. That's that's a pretty strong motivation, right? To say to to then ask God, don't let them destroy themselves why don't you go ahead and try a different angle? And this is the angle I'm asking you to try. He, he came up with the solution. I want a famine. That's, that's what will cause this, the people to remember and to listen. And that's, that's, where their motiva- that's where his motivation came from. And I think that's where the same motivation is going to come from with these two witnesses. It's going to be the love which these two people have for the Jews, for who they are, for what they believe, and... From that love, they will then know what they need to do in order to protect them from this army that, as you've mentioned, has laid waste to every other city and every other nation they have walked through. I completely 100% agree. 100% agree. It had to have been from a place of love that Nephi had for his people. But I also want to submit that that's not enough. And this is the reason I say that. No one loves his people more than the Savior. And when Jesus came to the Nephites, he said, I, can't, I could not show the miracles that I've shown to you to the Jews because they didn't have the faith that you have. If they had had the faith that you have, Nephites, I would have been able to show them the same things that I'm showing you. Even the Savior himself, with all of the power of the universe, cannot go beyond the bounds that he has set for faith. Faith has to be the source for power. And the reason I bring this up is because there's this really interesting passage in Zechariah. We've already read it, but I want to read it one more time. And Tell me what you think, okay? In Zechariah 12, verse 5, it says, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, okay, this is, again, reference to that love that they have for the people and the the desire that they have to protect them. The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. So the strength that they have is because of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this is, this is my perspective on that. In no age of time, in no century, in no era ever among the Jews, ever before, will there ever be as much faith among them as there will be during this time, right before Christ comes. And for that reason, There will never be miracles as great that have been seen among the Jews. There will never be miracles as great as those that will be seen by those who wait for the Lord during this time in the Jewish history. They will literally see an army greater than any army ever assembled 
resisted with just a few words from the mouth of a prophet. 200 million with all of their armaments and all of their vehicles and all of their warfare, like nothing. They cannot break the cliffs with their measly little ocean. They would have to have that kind of faith in order for the Lord to come and to save them the way that he will come. I think some of that faith will come from, finally, after all of these centuries, we are finally seeing the prophecies of the prophets fulfilled. We finally have a temple again. We are finally doing temple work again. We are finally seeing prophets among us again. We finally see the power of God in our lives again. We're getting baptized. We're receiving ordinances. We finally have what we've been promised so long. And not only that, but we hear messages from these same prophets that Christ is here. He is on earth. He is with Zion. He is there with the saints. And all we have to do is wait for him and he will come here too. That's the message of those prophets. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be their strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. So we, we've talked about this, um, the scripture in Zechariah chapter 4, where it says that they are a source of golden oil. In other words, they're going to be a source of anointings themselves, those who will be anointed in Jerusalem. And what I think that means, and this, this is a very important um, piece to this puzzle, what I think that means is these two prophets are going to Jerusalem for two very important reasons. The first reason is to protect Jerusalem from this army. Okay, that's, that's obviously important. But the, probably the more important reason is to establish temple work. Establish a temple, dedicate a temple, and establish temple work among the Jews in Jerusalem. That is an absolutely essential part of the preparation of the Jews before the coming of their Messiah. They have to have temple worship. So many prophets and so many prophecies talk about the temple that is in place, built, reconstructed, and operating before the Lord comes again. And so I think one of the very important um, parts of their mission is to reestablish temple work in Jerusalem. Let's give one more, one more um, scriptural reference from the Old Testament, and then we're just going to go get cut straight to the chase and go to Joseph Smith. All right, so in 2 Nephi, okay, now this is, I said that it's an Old Testament reference, and it is, but we have to go to 2 Nephi because Nephi gives us an expanded version of this scripture, the scripture from Isaiah, okay? So, um, and of course, Isaiah always, we can always count on Isaiah always. Um, This verse from Isaiah, it is um, chapter 8 of 2 Nephi, okay? And it picks up in in verse 19. It says, And which section section of Isaiah is being quoted here? The normal um, Isaiah chapters pick up in chapter 12. This is in chapter 8, so he's actually referencing a different section. Um, It's Isaiah 51. He's referencing Isaiah 51. Um, this is the, the part of Isaiah where he talks about awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, right? Um, so when, and, and the very often quoted in the, in the Book of Mormon, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. So we're talking specifically about this time of the second coming where Zion has been redeemed. People are returning. There's this gathering that's happening because the Lord is in Zion and his people are being gathered together um, into Zion. And then it picks up in verse 19. It says, These two sons are come unto thee, who shall be sorry for thee. And we're referencing Jerusalem. So in verse 17, it says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. And then it says right after that, These two sons are come unto thee, who shall be sorry for thee, thy desolation and destruction, and the famine and the sword. And by whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted. Save these two. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, and not with wine. Thus saith thy Lord, 
The Lord and thy God pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. So, we have this reference to, again, this is kind of a timeline here. The Lord is in Zion. The redeemed are being gathered to Zion. Jerusalem has to stand up and awake. In other words, receive the gospel and be and receive it by covenant. And then there's this fury that is poured out upon them, a cup of trembling. There's that, that reference again, the same thing we see in Zechariah and Joel. And none are there that are, that are powerful enough to, to save them and protect them. So there are two sons that come unto them, and they will protect them. They will be like a bull in the net. They will be the fury of the Lord to protect Jerusalem. Interesting, right? That is not the same thing that it says in Isaiah chapter 51. In Isaiah chapter 51, it does not reference two sons. It says two things are come unto thee, which is a completely different meaning, right? All right. So we have talked about how they will establish temple work, how they will protect the city of Jerusalem and the people of the nation of Judah, how they will um, have the sealing power and the Melchizedek priesthood, how they will um, be from the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency, and how they are going to prophesy and minister for three and a half years, right? In Doctrine and Covenant 77, one of our favorite uh, chapter or favorite sections to explain the book of Revelation, um, you want to read that one for us, Jared, in verse 15? Yes. Yes, and ironically, this is the last question that was asked. I wished he could have asked a few more. I know, me too. Joseph asks, question, what is to be understood by the two witnesses in the 11th chapter of Revelation? Answer, there are two prophets that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation in the last days, at the time of the restoration, and to prophesy to the Jews after they are gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem, in the land of their fathers. Now, can we pause just for a moment and say, there was no nation of the Jews during the time of Joseph Smith. Can we pause and say, there was no city of Jerusalem built up in the land of their fathers by the Jews during the time of Joseph Smith. So at the very, very, very least, we have to say, Joseph Smith got that prophecy right. And those who detract from him and say, well, he never had a prophecy fulfilled ever. Um, Excuse me, no. Here is an example (laughs) of his prophetic calling and his prophetic power. They did build a nation a hundred years after Joseph Smith. They did build the city of Jerusalem again in the land of their fathers a hundred years after Joseph Smith. So I just wanted to pause and, and point that out for just a second. That's a good point, and I, I thought about that too as I read this scripture, that in the context of when this revelation was given, Israel was not a nation, and the city of Jerusalem was not inhabited by the Jews. In 2021, there is a nation of Israel, and it is in, and Jerusalem is inhabited by the Jews. And they have built a beautiful city there. They have. The third temple, this finally, after all this time, the third temple will be completed and dedicated among the Jews. And the two prophets will establish an orderly way for the Jews to perform and receive temple ordinances again. Now, there's something interesting about this third temple, okay? Now, we talk about the third temple. The reason we call it the third temple is because in that exact same spot, centuries before, millennia before, the original temple of Solomon was built. And if, if tradition holds, it's the same exact place, uh, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, where Abraham was said to have offered his son Isaac. And of course, the angels stopped the, the sacrifice and, and uh, Isaac became the inheritor of the promises. Um, but that, that exact same place is the place where they say, Abraham offered his son. In that same location, they built the Temple of Solomon. 
And the Temple of Solomon, with all its glory and beauty, stood for about 500 years. And then after the Babylonians came in, they burned the, the temple to the ground. This is a little bit of temple history here. After another 70 years, the prophets came back, and the governor, the governor of the Jews, and the prophets that were there, they were able to, by inspiration, rebuild the temple and establish temple work again among the Jews. And they built the temple in the same place. They call it the Temple of Zerubbabel. But they built the temple in the same place as the Temple of Solomon. And that temple stood until the time of Christ. It stood from about the year 500 or so, 520, whatever, until 5, 517 or how, whatever, whatever that year was. It stood until the time of Christ. And Herod, a few years before Christ was born, Herod the Great, renovated the temple, added to it, and made it even more and more glorious. And by the time Christ came, Christ accepted that house as his father's house and as his house. One of the saddest things in all of scriptures is right before Christ leaves that temple for the last time, he says, I am going to leave your house desolate. And what he meant by that was he would never come back. He would never come back to that temple. It would be desolate from that point forever. Until, of course, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Their temple was without glory and without the presence of the Lord from that point forward because they had rejected he whose house it was, right? So, that all being said, that was temple number one was Solomon. Temple number two was that same temple that Christ was preaching from. Um, it was established at first by Zerubbabel and the prophets and renovated by Herod. And then after it was destroyed, there was no more temple in that spot until the present day. When that temple is rebuilt, and it will be rebuilt someday on that same spot, the third temple, the third Jerusalem temple, that great temple of, of Scripture, that Ezekiel dedicated chapter upon chapter to describe. It will be established again as a house of the Lord, a new house, not the one that Christ promised would be desolate, but a new house that is dedicated by modern prophets with the same ancient priesthood, but a modern organization of the church and a modern organization of that priesthood. It will be established with modern ordinances and modern conveniences and um, modern architecture. But I have a feeling that it will also kind of have that historical flair. You know what I mean? It, it won't just be a modern temple like we see, but it'll also have like this ancient feel. Like it'll bring together the old and the new, the old world and the new world. It will bring together the East and the West. It will bring together the saints and the Jews. It will bring together the Gentiles and the Jews. It will bring together all things into one, into this beautiful, marvelous Jerusalem temple. One thing I was thinking about a little bit about the third temple, that you believe that this third temple will be a temple that would include all of the ordinances of the gospel, of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. I know there's also other theories out there that suggest that it will just be, it'll be a third temple built by the Jews for the same purpose that they had the temple back when for fulfilling the law of Moses. I do know that from a kind of a standpoint of where the Jews are on this, um, there is a group of Jews that offered sacrifice uh, of a Paschal lamb um, outside uh, the temple wall. Um, they were given permission to do that, and it was an interesting thing to see. They had all of the artifacts of the temple constructed. They had the altar, they had the um, menorah, they had, they had all the artifacts of the temple there. The altar of incense. Yeah, altar of incense with the exception of an ark. That was the only thing I think that was missing from, <laughs> from That's the... That's probably smart. Um, yeah, it probably would be. If you've seen be. the movie. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want your face <laughs> melting off. Um, anyway, it was it was interesting 
because at the time, this this was the first time they had offered sacrifice in this way, probably since the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And because it was such an important event for them as a people, they sent letters out to 70 nations, inviting them inviting them to come and to watch. And I don't know how many of those 70 nations showed up. I have no idea if the United States was on that list at the time. Um, but they did uh, send invitations out to 70 nations to come and to, to participate and be a part of that ordinance. And the thing that was interesting about it is the, the young men that helped out with that ordinance. It wasn't just the old men participating in this sacrifice. It was the young men and the old men working together to offer up this burnt offering. Now, at the time, they weren't allowed to actually sacrifice a lamb on the altar. As I understand it, they felt like that might take it a little bit too far since most people aren't used to seeing animals die. Uh, so they actually had the, the lamb butchered beforehand, um, but they did take the parts of the lamb and they did burn it on the, um, on the, on the altar um, as, as, as well as a, a meal offering as well. So if you haven't had a chance to YouTube it, it's probably still up there. But it was interesting when you think about the context of the Jews wanting to build a temple the Jews wanting to return back to the ordinances that they used to follow. And up until that year, um, they were not allowed to offer those sacrifices. Um, but that year they did. Do you remember what, do you remember what year it was? So um, I did a, a quick search and I did find uh, a little uh, snippet Online, according to this snippet, um, I believe it was performed on March twenty sixth, twenty eighteen. Oh, cool, twenty eighteen. Interesting. Let me let me go back in time a little bit. So, there was a guy by the name of Pharaoh, and the Book of Abraham talks at length about Pharaoh, and he says that Pharaoh, because of his parentage, because he was of the lineage of Ham, he was not allowed to have priesthood. Ham's posterity was cursed, and Pharaoh was among those who were cursed, right? Well, Pharaoh, because he couldn't have the priesthood legally, he tried to counterfeit the priesthood. They built temples. They had ordinances. They tried to copy the same thing that was being done in the city of Salem, um, among Melchizedek and his people, they tried to make a copy of that in Egypt. And the way that Abraham describes it is that because it wasn't authorized by the Lord, it quickly became idolatry. It quickly became a counterfeit, a source of false worship among the Egyptians. And I mean, you could make the argument that they have had idolatry there ever since. When you try to take the name of the Lord and you don't have authority, the scriptures say that you take the name of the Lord in vain, and it's a serious, serious sin. I'm not saying that these particular Jews who tried to do the ordinances of, of the ancient temple are engaged in idolatry or anything like that. What I'm saying is you have to be very careful when you're not authorized to do something and you take it upon yourself to do it anyway. Remember the story of Saul? Saul was not authorized to offer sacrifice. He was specifically told to wait until uh, Samuel the prophet came, was going to come before they offered sacrifice. And he's like, eh, I just did it. Am I king or am I king? And Samuel's like, are you serious, Saul? What the heck, dude? That, that's my loose interpretation. Um, he said, Saul, don't you know that obedience is better than sacrifice? You cannot do these things unless you're authorized to do them. And I think in that same exact vein, scripturally very, very clear, you cannot hold the ark 
unless you're authorized to hold it. You cannot prevent it from falling even unless you are authorized to touch that thing. You cannot take the power upon yourself, but you have to be called as was Aaron and as was Moses. So you have to be very careful when you take that upon yourself. Long story short, it is interesting to see that there is this strong pull and this strong desire for the Jews to return to those ancient practices, those ancient ordinances, and the ordinances of the temple. I think that there is a lot of Jews who would love to see it again, who would love to see those kinds of things come back and be restored. And they will be. But they will be through the proper channels and the proper authority. Yes, uh, understood that, at least when it comes to authority of the priesthood, these individuals probably did not hold what we would constitute the Aaronic priesthood, um, as we know it within the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. But here, at least you do have a group of Levites um, that are attempting to bring back those ordinances. All right. So let's, let's, uh, you probably have studied this topic at length. I know you have. Um, but to a lot of Latter-day Saints, I don't know that they realize that animal sacrifice will become a part of what is restored in the Jerusalem temple. You've studied that before, right? Yeah. John the Baptist alludes to it in section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, absolutely. In both the journal entry from Joseph Smith and also from Oliver Cowdery, both of them mention it. Animal sacrifice will be part of temple work done in Jerusalem when the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt and dedicated. But I think that according to the scriptures and according to modern prophets, we have to be careful that we don't say that that's the only thing that's going to happen in that temple. That's the only ordinance there. And also that we understand the nature of how it works. Um, For example, the exact laws and rights that were given to Moses and all of those different ordinances and and performances, um, according to the law of Moses, not all of those will be restored. In fact, anything that has been fulfilled through Christ will remain fulfilled through Christ. But think about this for a second. You have an offering that is given upon the altar. And let's, let's say that if it's, if it's a calf, that's symbolic of Christ, right? Uh, uh, the, the young bullock. If it's a, a lamb, that is symbolic of Christ, right? If it's a, a he goat, as they say, um, that's symbolic of Christ. Those herd animals that gave life and sustenance to the Jews, those three animals as offerings are symbolic of Christ. You also have, um, you have grain that's offered and you have turtle doves that are off. You have these different kinds of offerings that are all symbolic and typifying of Christ to point their minds forward to that time when he offers himself as a sacrifice. But let me ask you this interesting question, okay? Why is it that they burned the offerings? Where's the symbolism there? The law of Moses wasn't just symbolic of the first coming of Christ. It was also symbolic of the second coming of Christ. Any of those ordinances that dealt with the events and the symbols of the second coming will have to be restored. And so you'll see in the book of Ezekiel, when he's talking about this third temple, that they will restore burnt offerings unto the Lord. Those are the ones that will be restored. And it will be obviously symbolic and harken back to the atonement of Christ and when he gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. But it will also point forward to a time when Christ comes again and the entire world will be consumed by fire. I think that we have to remember that Moses saw all of this. He saw not just the first coming of Christ, but he also saw the second coming of Christ. And when he, with the help of the Lord, designed the law of Moses to typify and to point minds forward to and to testify and prophesy of Christ, 
it wasn't just the first coming of Christ. It was also the second coming of Christ. And so we shouldn't be disturbed as members of the church to think, oh, it's animal sacrifice. That's, that's, I don't know about that. That's that doesn't barbaric. sound barbaric. Right. Yeah, that's barbaric. That's, that's not right. That can't be right. Doesn't the Book of Mormon say that that was done away? I think it might be worthwhile to actually look at that scripture really quick, in fact. In chapter 8 of 3 Nephi. Actually, you know what? Let me read chapter 15 of 3 Nephi. Um, in chapter 15, Christ is explaining, because a lot of the people there had a question about the transition from the law of Moses to this new law that Christ was teaching, this law of the gospel that he was teaching. And Christ knew this, of course, and so he decided that he was going to explain it in more depth. In chapter 15, verse 4, he says, Behold, I say unto you that the law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Okay, so when we think about the sacrifices that will be done in the temple, we have to remember that this is not just something that was done as part of the law of Moses. Sacrifice was done all the way back to the time of Adam, and that has to be restored. And then he says, behold, I am he that gave the law, and I am he who covenanted with my people Israel. Therefore, the law in me is fulfilled. And he could have said, the law in me is fulfilled during my second coming, as well as my first coming. For I have come to fulfill the law, therefore it hath an end. Behold, I do not destroy the prophets. And you could add in here also, I don't destroy any of the prophecies of Moses. For as many as have not been fulfilled in me, verily I say unto you, shall all be fulfilled. And because I said unto you that old things have passed away, I do not destroy that which has been spoken concerning things which are to come, like the second coming. For behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled. But the law which was given unto Moses hath an end in me. Now this is the interesting thing. In verse 9, he says, Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. I am the law. So we talk about how um, the first books of Moses, the first five books of Moses are called the Torah or the law. Christ is the law. And when it says the law shall come forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem, It's talking about Christ. Christ is the law that will come forth out of Zion. He is the word, as John calls him. He is the word of the Lord that comes out of Jerusalem. He is the reason the temple is a temple. When Christ left the temple of Herod, his house, and he left it desolate, it was no longer his house. The only reason a temple is a temple is because he is there. And if he is not there, it's not a temple. So when the temple is rebuilt and he comes to that temple, then the law will be there. Then the word of the Lord will be there. Then he will be there. When animal sacrifice is restored, it will be as a type and a shadow of the second coming, it needs to point our minds to him, the minds of the Jews to him, because they cannot be restored. They cannot fully be restored unless they accept and believe in and covenant with the true Messiah. And when they do, the power of the Jews will be astounding. The protection and the fury and the might of the Jews will be unheard of in all of history. In fact, the scriptures say they will be like a lion among the flock of sheep. They will tread the Gentiles under their feet. The power of the Jews will be amazing. So I think it's really, really interesting how this this beloved people of the Lord, his people, how they will once again begin to believe in the true Messiah, the true Messiah. And they will no longer be looking forth for another Messiah who is to come. 
this right here, this is like the the whole entire um, the the whole entire scriptures have been pointing to this time forever. The time when the Jews will be restored, the restoration of the Jews, when they will have prophets and temples and power and priesthood and the Lord their God again among them. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, Sean has authored a book series called Chronological Signs of the Second Coming of Christ. Volume 1 is about the sixth seal, and Volume 2 is about the seventh seal. Go to seanswork.com signs to find show notes for this episode and links to purchase the books. This podcast is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we faithfully sustain and support the church, its leaders, its teachings, and the scriptures, including the Bible and the Book of Mormon.